0: After two months of sorting out meat, bread and water, our wandering nation set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, the special place where he could hear God clearly. And the Lord says to Moses, Give these instructions to my people. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and enter into sacred agreement with me, You will be my special people, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Everything and everyone on earth belongs to me, but I'm choosing you. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders. After a big yarn, they all agreed to enter this sacred agreement and obey the Lord. So Moses took the people's answer back up to the mountain. Then the Lord says, Great! That verbal agreement is a good start, but this is sacred business and not to be taken lightly. I will come to you, Moses, in a thick cloud so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. This includes big flash houses, servants, donkeys, jet skis and so on. And take note, this includes wishing you could have someone else's husband or wife. See rule number seven about adultery. So that concluded the top 10 rules for community living that God told Moses during that visit to the mountaintop. If the thick cloud, thunder, lightning and noise and earthquake wasn't enough to emphasise how important this event was, the Lord also gave some instructions for worship ceremonies that would help them remember the sacred agreement between God and his people. He put extra emphasis on reminding Moses not to make any idols of silver or gold. See you next week.
1: Well, thanks, Peter. I appreciate you uh, telling your stories and setting the scene for us this morning. When I was 21 years old, I remember standing in front of this particular station and uh, it was, um, I'm just going to go back one there. There it is. There, I remember standing in this particular station in, uh, in Paris. I had saved up enough money, and one of my goals in life was to actually go across and explore Europe. So at the ripe old age of 21, I got on an airplane. I was there with someone I vaguely knew for the first few days. But when I actually arrived in Paris about the second or third day, I woke up one morning and i decided that i wanted to go and explore and i remember standing at this one of this one of the grand stations in paris looking at the board that had all of the different possible destinations that you could go in northern europe and northwestern europe i remember standing there and all that i had with me was a passport i had some francs and my backpack and i was looking at the board and wondering where do i go now i know this might sound a little bit pretentious but i chose a little place why wouldn't you called Interlaken in Switzerland. And I remember boarding the train and uh, sitting down in the, the comfy seat that was going to be reduced from a really nice train to a we'd call like a red rattler. And it was going to arrive in the, the dark or the wee hours of the morning into a place I'd never been to before. And I remember muttering the words, God, it's you and me. I'd grown up in a church setting where we'd we'd sung, we'd served, we'd participated, we'd explored what it meant to sort of follow Jesus in a community of people. But it was probably the first time in my life that all of the different resources had been stripped away. And I found myself standing in that one particular place and that particular destination towards Interlaken. The first time in my life feeling like... There was none of those other extra resources that I'd become comfortable with in my life. And the first time I felt, if you like, exposed. And so the words I muttered, God, it's you and me. This week I've been trying to think about when are the times in our lives in which we actually go deeper with God and develop a journey of trust. And sometimes we can observe other people and be inspired by their stories. We can pick up a Bible and we can learn to to, to read it and and to put it into practice and to do the things that it says and to to honor God. But there are some times in our life in which really the times in which we grow the most are when we're thrown into the wilderness. See, the wilderness can be a dangerous place. It's the place where all of the, the resources that you've become reliant upon are stripped away in your life and you are laid vulnerable and bare. It's dangerous in the wilderness. You see, in the wilderness, if you don't have shelter, if you don't have water, and if you don't have food, you will perish. And sometimes in our lives, we might walk into wilderness settings, we might be called into wilderness settings, or we might be thrown into wilderness settings. The key question, though, we need to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, is how do we find our bearings in the wilderness? I was talking to some young adults two weeks ago. And I said to them, no one will ever tell you this. He said, some of the most critical times of your life with God will be formed and shaped in the wilderness. And no one can walk that journey with you or for you, but you alone. The only way through the river is for you to walk through the river. You need to enter into times in which... You become sufficient on God and there are times in which you will need to remove or have removed from you all of the safety and the security net around about you so that you can discover that there is freedom to walk with God in the dangerous places of the wilderness. So that's what I want to talk about today. Finding your bearings in the wilderness because the wilderness can be dangerous but can also be liberating. It's you and me, God. This is where we pick up the story. The first thing I want to say to you, and the first thing that, that God was trying to relay to his people, was that God is in the wilderness. God is in the wilderness. I've been thinking about these words of, of Moses, or at least the story the narrator says this in Exodus 15. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. That's it. Just beforehand, Moses had sung this great song, this victory song, about how the oppressors, the Egyptians, had, been, had perished in the Red Sea. And then, then Miriam picks up a tambourine, and she plays, and she sings, and, and she celebrates this, this great victory. But then the very next line, it continues on and it says, then they went into the wilderness. So I've been wondering, what was it like that first night in the wilderness? You see, on the Jewish calendar, actually this week, they celebrate the Feast of Sokol, that is the Feast of Booths, where they made little shanties, little booths in the wilderness that they dwelt in. And it's, it's being celebrated this week. And that's exactly what the Israelites did what was it like that first night in which they were in the wilderness, when they realized that all of the celebrations of the great victories of God that, that set them free, and that—and I wonder when it dawned on them, wait a second, we're alone here, and we're in the wilderness. Some years ago, our family, we did a trip around Central Australia, and we had opportunity uh, out of Alice Springs to go to Palm Valley, that ancient sort of oasis where there's, there's palms that have been found in the center of Australia. And we went, we took a friend's troopie and they lent us um, their swags and we headed out to Palm Valley. I remember that evening we had pitched ourselves in one of the camping grounds, there were some other people sort of dispersed around about and we, we put down our little shelters, our little booths, our swags, and we zipped up for the night and prepared for some sleep. And then when the sun went down and it began to get a little bit dark, we we heard one solitary, one lonely dingo, and it started to howl. And it howled. And and it awoken another dingo who then started to howl as well and join with it in this chorus. And then that signaled to another another dingo and another dingo and another dingo and another dingo. And before you knew it, there was this chorus, there was this feast of sound coming out of these dingers, this howling from the tops of the mountains. And then the howling started to proceed down the mountain towards the campsite. And then it went eerily quiet. And we realized in that moment in our little booths that we were alone in the wilderness. And I remember Ron saying to the kids in their swags, it's okay, we're safe in our swags. And then we heard them and uh, saw them, dingoes scratching around looking for food, our food, in the wilderness." I've been thinking about those moments and the aloneness that they must have felt that first night in the wilderness and why it was that if God had done some great miraculous things, he'd parted the waves, he'd sent plagues to secure their victory. Why didn't he just pick them up and carry them to the place that he told Moses to lead them into Mount Sinai? Or why didn't God instruct them and say, go and get the chariots and their horses, kind of secure some way in which they could be spirited? into the wilderness and get to the destination they needed to go. And I realized that God wants to teach us something in the wilderness. Not only that God is in the wilderness, but also God wants to teach us things in the wilderness. He wants to reveal himself. He wants to... Be the one who reveals himself in such a way that people who follow him will learn to trust him when they can see pathways ahead and when they can't. Well, you wonder how long before the whole thing falls apart. And not too far into it, it says this. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not not drink its water because it was bitter. After three days when their resources had been deplenished and they began to get thirsty, then they started to complain and they began to call out and grumble and whinge in the wilderness. And so they come to Moses and they say, we're thirsty, we need water. So Moses calls out to God and God miraculously provides water in the wilderness. Then after a little bit more time, they get hungry and they go to Moses and they say these words. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There at least we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, Moses, have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Can you imagine? <laughs> You're in the wilderness place and you've been liberated by God and they're thirsty And God provides. And then they get hungry and they start to whine and whinge and complain. And they start to say, God, Moses, we want to go back to Egypt, at least in Egypt, under our oppressors. We knew what was coming. We knew what was coming tomorrow. That even though they would push us to do all the work and we were slaves in that place, at least we had meat in our pots. At least we had water to drink. Unlike where we are right now, it would have been better if we had been back in Egypt. So Moses calls out to God, and the story goes, is that God provides this sticky substance in the wilderness called manna. It's a sweet, sticky substance that they said, what is this? They called it manna. And God said for six days, what I want you to do is just to collect enough for each day for the first five days on the sixth day because I want you to celebrate Sabbath. I want you to get into the pattern and the routine of creation in which I rested so you rest. And I want you to trust me in this. Collect a double portion on the sixth day so you don't have to look for it on the seventh. And so as God observed their behavior, what they did each day is at the start, they began to collect enough for tomorrow God was frustrated. And then on the sixth day, when they should have collected double portion, not only did they do that, but they came out on the seventh day and started looking for it as well. And God got grumpy then. And he actually said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? So not only are the Israelites complaining and whinging and griping to Moses, now God's actually complaining to Moses about his people. And so after that, the people get thirsty again. And so they call out and they start to whinge and whine and complain to Moses until in the end, Moses gets grumpy himself. And he calls out to God and he says, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. What started out as a really good family trip has all of a sudden been disintegrated. You know those trips where you pack the car and we're going to have that awesome, adventurous holiday together. and It's going to be so bonding. This thing's going to be so unifying. We're going to have such an awesome time together as a family. And then you actually get in the car and it's not just, Mom, she touched me, or Dad, he looked at me, but just this whining and this complaining. Not only, when are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And as a parent, you know that's exactly why the car manufacturers, in those moments, when you're traveling at 100 clicks down the highway, why they made a break. You see, they made a break so that when you press it, you can reach to the back and you just bring those kids in into play, right? There's plenty of times when we were traveling halfway around Australia where we pulled the car over and we sent one of them out and said, you need to have a break because we need to have a break from you. And they don't remember the wonderful family holiday. But You see, God was actually trying to teach his people something. He was trying to instruct them, not only about who he was, but that they could trust him in the wilderness. I remember being in North India in a place called Lucknow. I was there with a group from New Community, and we'd gone into a village, and there was a small Christian community within that village, and we're talking huts, booths, swags in that place. I remember sitting with the pastor of the church that would go out into that little Indian community, and they would run a gathering, a church service, and uh, it had worked that the, the men and their instruments would be at the front, all the ladies and the colourful salaries, and then the, the village people, not the band, the actual external people that weren't Christians would come along and gather around the outside and listen. And I remember the pastor, as the music was playing and they were, they were singing, turning to me and he said, um, could you talk? I said, oh, yeah, I suppose I could. Um, how long would you like me to talk for? And he goes, oh, I don't know, about 40 minutes. I said, okay. I said, what would you like me to talk on? He said, I'd like you to just encourage some of the new believers in the community here, because there's some new Christians. And I remember hoping and praying, God, would you keep the music going for long enough so that I could actually do some prep? (laughs) I remember at the end of our time, they would praise, they would preach, and then they would pray. And at the end of it, they would just have anyone come down, and they would lay hands on people and pray for them. There was this elderly woman who crawled down on her hands and knees to the front. And when it was translated what her condition was or what she was experiencing, the first thing that came to my mind is that I think this woman has cancer. And I remember looking into the distance and seeing this this big, tall building that was a hospital and thinking to myself, there is no way this woman would ever be allowed into that facility. All they have is life or death and prayer. So we prayed for her. I remember going back to the minister's, the pastor's house afterwards, and and I had this question. I said, what happens when you pray for people and they don't get healed? (laughs) And and he said, firstly, uh, that's a Western question. We don't ask that question. Because when we pray for people, there's enough people who are getting healed to, to leave the other ones in God's concern and care. But we're seeing him at work. And it struck me in that moment that in their hardship, in in their, if you like, lack of resource, they had built and developed the kind of bearings that caused them to anchor down and pray in different ways that in my Western construct with all of the securities wrapped around me would not allow me to develop. It was as though the architecture of their wilderness produced a robustness in their faith and their life that caused them, if you like, to trust and rely upon God in ways that I had not seen. God wants to reveal himself in the wilderness. I love these words at the end when they finally get to their destination. God says this to Moses, you yourself... Have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Don't you love the way they just round stuff off as though it's just really nice? No, it wasn't. It was a terrible road trip and it was hard the whole way. But what God was trying to do was to invite them to push past and to get their bearings and learn to trust upon him and go to him with their troubles in ways that Egypt would never have taught them. And so they finally arrive in their place and they're in the wilderness and they're about to discover that God calls in the wilderness. What I mean by that, God's calling was about to be issued to them in the wilderness. Well, after three days, they prepare, as Peter explained, And on Mount Sinai, God descends and he says he descends in thick cloud and there is thunder and lightning and the earth is shaking and it would have been a fearsome sight. And Moses puts a perimeter around the mountain and he says to the people, don't come any closer. This is kind of like a burning bush moment just repeated now with the whole assembly. And it's not as though they couldn't come to God because um, he didn't love them or care for them. Or because he was angry and and wanted to strike them. But because he was revealing something about himself. That God was immortal and they were mortal. And when the mortals come close to the immortal and the holy and the powerful and the other, he's dangerous. Not because he wants to be dangerous, just because he is. He's like electricity. And so he was warning them, don't come close because it could be dangerous for you. But I'm for you. And Moses proceeds up to the mountain, and it's there that God speaks to him. And it says that God wrote on two stone tablets, Israel's calling. And before that moment, God speaks to Moses, and he says these words. Now, if you fully obey and keep my covenant that I'm about to give you, this sacred, this sacred agreement, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Not if as though, if you do this, then I will, but rather you are my treasured possession. And if you obey my commands, you will reflect your treasuredness throughout the world. And then he says this, Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. You are to function like these conduits between heaven and earth, that when people see you, they will see me. And the things I give to you, you will reflect back to the world around about. And in this way, you will be a kingdom of priests. And you will be like a different kind of nation. You will function and operate in a different way to the world around about. And so Moses receives these tablets and are written on them these words. And when people see these, I just want to extract out three different layers you can see in the commands and the laws that are given. First is this God says to Moses, I don't want you to covet. I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to steal. I don't want you to commit adultery. I don't want you to murder. Some people have said that in this, this is like the horizontal kind of fabric of our societies, the horizontal relationships, the very things that instill trust. Imagine a world in which you grew up in. When you open the door of a morning time, you're in fear that someone might take your life or that someone might steal from you or lie about you. Or covet the things that you have. Because is someone who is caught up in coveting things that you have means that you are always fair and live game for them. That they're always plotting and scheming. How do I get what they have? In fact, all the other four above it are compromised when someone who is never satisfied with what they have and always wants what someone else have. If you like, this is the very fabric, if you like. He said if you, if you avoid these things, another way of saying it is, you'll be developing trust and build community and establish, if you like, respectful places amongst people here on earth. And then, if you like, in this first layer, he talks about this, this first set of five commands. And he says this, I want you to honor your father, mother. I want you to keep Sabbath. I want you to not profane my name. I don't want you to chase after other idols. And I want you to know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. What are we to make of this? Some people have said that it reflects, if you like, the the vertical relationship to God and authority in our lives. And it starts off with this curious one down the very bottom, honor father, mother. What are we to make of that? Honoring father, mother in the list of these vertical relationships with God. Well, someone has once said that if you learn to receive uh, authority, you will be able to give authority. Or, Or perhaps looked in a different way. If you've learnt to honor up, then you'll be able to, maybe more inclined to be able to honor down. In fact, this whole thing works on the chain reaction of, of a mother and father honoring their, their mother and father, and 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 the whole list goes up, an entire fabric of society in which honoring just becomes natural. And if you like, honoring up might help you honor people down, your children. And then thirdly, that if you honor up mother, father, then you might be able to look up and trust and honor God. This top one, I'm the Lord your God, you ought to have no other idols besides me. Isn't God being egotistical? It's actually God understanding something fundamentally about who we are and how he has made us. That human beings are made to worship and we become what we worship. So if you worship the God of money, sooner or later you'll begin to look at people through a a numerical device that estimates their worth based upon how much finance they have. If you're someone who, who chases after status and power, sooner or later you will rank people according to their status and power. But if you worship that which is truly God that gives life, then you will reflect Him back into the world. He created you. To habit. I wonder, with these commands, if we might see them in in a second way as well. Is that actually the profound sense of drawing close to God causes us? If you like to be transformed and changed, that's why spending time with God is something he invited people to do. Again, not because he needs an ego that needs to be stroked, but rather when you get close to God, the source of power and mercy and kindness and justice and, and goodness, he rubs off. And he rubs off in such a way that loving him will actually translate into being able to loving others. And the third layer, final layer, is that those tablets can act like a mirror to you. That when you look at them, it acts like a mirror to your own heart and mind. I was talking with someone this week who I've been reading Bible with. And they said, this profound. You know, when I read these words, I think about myself. And it's as though it's reading me. God bids you come. You see, what God was doing in that moment and that time is he was giving them a calling in the wilderness. Sometimes people say, I'm still trying to work out what God's calling is for my life. And I want to say to them, no, he's already called you. And his calling is simply this, that you might be the kind of person that reflects his laws written on your heart, reflected to other people around about. That's what I would call his general calling. His general calling answers the question, how should I live? His specific calling answers, where should I live? There's some people here that are listening this morning that when this COVID space is over, you need to go and spend some time in the wilderness to reassess what is God's calling, his specific calling on my life. Because you've been unsettled and you've been, if you like, laid bare. And he's calling you to actually go to him again and say, God, where and who, not who would you have me be, but where would you have me serve you? And so... I wonder, where are you in the wilderness today? Because I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. It was said of him that he went to a mountain. And he sat down and he called 12 to himself. And on that mountain, he began to instruct them. In such a way that you would almost have to say if you're a Jewish person, this is kind of a Moses event being reenacted. But he said these words to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they will be filled one day when my heavens and earth come together. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy by God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for one day they will see God and there will be a world that we would inhabit, a heaven and earth coming together where there will be no more corruptness, no more dirt, no more grime where purity and, and mercy and justice and meekness will reign. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of things falsely about me to you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Jesus went on and he said these words, you, you, you are the light of the world. As a city on a hillside cannot be hidden, but it, it emits its light so all can see. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his saltiness, what good is it anymore to be trampled underfoot and to be thrown out? You are the salt of the earth. That's your calling. That's who you're to be. There's a God who's, in the wilderness there's a God who wants to instruct us in the wilderness and there's a God who calls us to shine for him when we are in wilderness times so 9 30 Wednesday morning when the staff was meeting online zoom call we like all Victorians felt an earthquake nearly six on the Richter scale my bookshelf was shaking as everyone else was running and saying are you okay what is that As we sat back and we we reflected upon that, I said, You know, it would be too easy for us to just say that was just a seismic event, a shifting of tectonic plates, and that is all. But I couldn't help but see that it reflected something more metaphorically for our state right now. Our state is being shaken, and people's lives are literally being shaken. And people are scared, and people are tired. And people are frustrated. It made me remember a story of Jesus where he's rowing to get away from people because he's so exhausted from them. And they follow him around the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets to his destination, they're there already. And it says he looks to them and he looks at them and he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he cared for them. And fed them manor in the wilderness. I wonder... In this season. How those people who are scared and tired. And they're angry and frustrated. Are looking at the people. Who are called to be salt and light. The ones who carry a confidence that God is with them. That they are learning a trust in the wilderness. And they have a different set of bearings. And so therefore. They take the higher road, always for the sake of others, because they understand their calling. Peter said these words, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you carry that confidence? Because if you carry that confidence, it shifts things enormously. So I wonder this morning, I wonder if you need to learn the lesson from the wilderness. God is in the wilderness. I wonder if he wants to teach you something in the wilderness and you've been in the the practice of complaining and whinging and calling out and he just wants to tune you in a different way. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being in plenty or being with little. And that secret is he's discovered there's a freedom in the wilderness, that he can trust God come what may. You and me, God. I wonder how he might be speaking to you today. Shine his light, be salty, meet him in the wilderness.